Welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yepeth, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Welcome. Well, I'm extremely excited today to be talking to Scott Hoffman. Scott Hoffman is not only one of the top agents in New York and actually in the world, but he is also the co-founder of Folio Literary, uh, one of the top agencies. So it's very exciting to have you here, Scott. You, you didn't mention my boyish good looks and my, <laughs> and my winning charm. And there's probably a reason for that because I'm the perfect podcast guest because I have a face made for radio. <laughs> well, you're actually... Uh... <laughs> My, my goal is my goal is to break uh, is to break Glenn up as much as possible so, during this well, interview. You're doing a good job so far. Well, Scott, and full disclosure, Scott and I have done a number of deals together and, and worked together over the years, and uh, he's one of the sharpest minds out there. So I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to him, and we're going to get into lots of stories and lots of questions about the industry. But but just maybe just start a little bit with how you got into this crazy business. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Publishing is a second career for me. My first career was in politics. I started out as a lobbyist in Washington D.C. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen House of Cards, it's a very, very right. portrayal of what things are like down there. It is, it's a slimy business. Every story you've heard about politics is true, and it's probably only half the story. And so uh, when I left politics, the way that I got into publishing, I figured, well, I, I figured that since I'd already sold my soul once, I'd make the perfect investment bank. <laughs> so I went back to grad school. I got an MBA in finance, and I was also take a banking job. And I realized that I didn't want that life. I didn't want to spend 18 hours a day, seven days a week staring at spreadsheets in a cubicle, no matter how right. much they were going to pay me. And one of the things that I did when I was in D.C. and I was really disillusioned with the world and my job was that I started writing a novel. And, you know, it was the typical thinly veiled semi-autobiographical <laughs> right. that every 27-year-old kid writes. And at that point, I had no idea how books got made. You know, I, I, I'd read so many books in my lifetime, but I had no idea what the, the, what the sausage-making process was like, so to speak, right? So I talked to a friend whose husband was a best-selling novelist, and I said, how did he get his first book published? And she said, you know, actually, it's a good question. I don't know the details. Why don't you talk to him? So I took the guy out for a beer, and he said, well, heck, you know, I, I just wrote the damn thing, and my agent did the rest. I said, your agent? What are you, like a movie star? You have an agent? <laughs> and uh, he said, no, no, my literary agent, the woman who does all my book deals. I was flabbergasted. I said, You'd never heard of this career. Oh, right, exactly. I said, that's a job? He said, yeah. I said, can you make a living doing that? And he said, well, you know, she makes 15% of everything I make, and she's got 49 other clients. And that's when the light bulb went, the light bulb went off in my head. And I realized that my two favorite things on the planet were books and deals. And here was this career where I could do book deals for a living. Right. So when I was, uh, when I was done with grad school, I basically just shotgunned out resumes to every agency in New York and said, I'll come work for you for free if you'll teach me the business. I got one response. I got an internship at this small agency, worked there for about 18 months, and then 12 years ago, started Folio. And it's been uh, it's been a great run. We're uh, we're 20 agents right now. We've sold uh, close to 2,000 titles. We've had more than 200 New York Times bestsellers. We do everything from literary fiction to kids' picture books, nonfiction. Actually, I'm really really proud of this. We just this year, for the first time in our history, we've sold two poetry books. Wow. Yeah, two, that's not easy. Not not at all. And not only not only do we sell poetry books, but we sold them for a non-trivial amount of money. These are both Instagram poets, both people who've got a fantastic okay. following on Instagram. After Milk and Honey. The Lady of the Milk and Honey right. uh, was a huge trailblazer. And it turns out that no matter what you're writing, no matter how niche you might think it is, if there, there's going to be a group of people who care about what you have to say. And if you're good at it, there's a place for you in the traditional publishing. So this is something where the internet really has transformed, that you can find your niche 
And then you can prove it to a publisher who can say, okay, that's real. I can now pursue that. It's, it's extraordinary. You know? and, and when I, when I talked to other agents and, and particularly a, a little bit, a, a little bit longer ago, maybe five or six years ago, uh, New York city publishers were terrified of self-publishing They're terrified of the internet. They were worried that they were going to be disintermediated out of the process. And what's happened is, is exactly the opposite of that, right? You know, there, there are certain things that publishers are good at, and there are other things that publishers are not very good at. I mean, you know, as a publisher, you know this. One of the things that they're not particularly good at is figuring out where the market is going to be versus where the market is. Right. And so what I've found and, and what, what, what my agent and colleagues have found is that the self-publishing world almost serves as a spectacular farm team for talent. And there are all kinds of people who have these remarkable followings and who've gone on to sell literally millions of copies of their books who never in a million years would have been or you know, would have been picked up by a traditional publisher before they were published. You know, everyone has trouble predicting the future, but if you've got a, a bunch of people crowdsourcing what the future is. Exactly. You can find those winners. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's somebody like Hugh Howey and Wool, right. science fiction, even in the nonfiction world, right? Like uh, the model for a, uh, for let's say a diet book used to be find a doctor who's got a program, you know, collect your before and afters, figure out what's going to happen there, promote the person's credentials, you know, get the person traditional publicity and bang, it's going to work. That model, if you look at what the best-selling diet books have been over the past couple of years, okay, sure. You know, one of them is like, let's say the 17-day diet, Mike Moreno, he's the right. whole Dr. Phil ecosystem. But one of my authors is this woman named J.J. Smith, and she came from absolutely nowhere, right? And, and her book, the reason that she decided to write a diet book was based on her personal experience. She was a management consultant. She was working for, uh, gosh, I, think it was, I think it was Deloitte or, or you know, one of your former colleagues. And she got very, very ill. She had a, a devastating illness that, that, that laid her up. In, in fact, it was so bad, she thought she wasn't going to make it. And her friends were looking at her and saying, JJ, you're, what, what's, what's going on? You're horrible. None of the doctors could figure out what, what was wrong with her. And she started putting all of her affairs in her because she, she, she thought that she might, she might not be long for this earth. Wow. And she happened to be a creature of habit. And so she went to the dentist for her, for, for her normal semi-annual dentist appointment. And the dentist said, JJ, you, you look horrible. She said, I know, I feel horrible. I, nobody knows what's going on. He said, okay, well, let's, 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 do, your, let's do your cleaning and then, and then we'll talk. And so the dentist is poking around in her mouth. And he said, you know, well, while you're here, do you want me to replace those fill? Oh my goodness. You lost a mercury amalgam filling. You have heavy metal poison. Wow. They took her right from the dentist office to the hospital. She stayed in the hospital for six months. They put her on like heavy chelation therapy. And started to work. She got out of the hospital. She'd been taking courses in uh, in nutrition because she thought you know she was she was a big uh, big healthy eater, and she figured she thought that diet might be the way to cure herself. And when she came out, she said, you know what what I want to do is I want to kind of reset for myself, and so I'm going to eat nothing but raw food for ten days. And she went on her own personal Facebook uh, page. She had maybe you know maybe two hundred right hundred Facebook fans. Like so, she didn't have a huge platform. This is something that virtually, like literally anybody in the world could do. And she said, can I get 10 friends to do this program with me for 10 days? She said, here's the deal. I don't like salads, but I want to eat raw food. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do take 60% leafy green vegetables and 40% fruit. We're going to throw them in the blender and we're going to make green smoothies. Right. And her friends were so happy that she was alive that a hundred of them said, JJ, we'll do this with you. <laughs> That's great. And so they did. And they started having these unbelievable results. You know, they were all eating the standard American diets. They're eating lots of salt. They're eating lots of, uh, you know, lots of carbohydrates. They had these cravings for sugar. And after eating green smoothies for 10 days, some of them lost 10 pounds. Some of them lost 12 pounds. People lost an inch off their waist. And they said, JJ, you know, of course, when, when something like this happens to you, what's your response? Your response is, JJ, you got to write a book. That's right. That's so right. she did. 
And she self-published it because she had to like, she, she didn't come from a tradition of, uh, of publishing. She didn't know any agents. She didn't know any publishers. So she uploads. And she probably would have had a hard time finding an agent. Correct. No credentials. Right? Exactly. No credentials, no track record, no platform. So she publishes this thing and it starts to take off. She sells 40,000 copies on her own, which is, you know, which is, which no, is that's which for very respectable. Is, is not bad at all. And one day she's sitting in her home office and she gets this phone call and she answers the phone and the voice in the other and says, this is JJ Smith. And she says, yes. Who is this? Steve Harvey. I, I host Family Feud. I'm a comedian. And she recognizes the voice. Yes, sir, Mr. Harvey. What can I do for you? <laughs> and so Steve Harvey does the program. He has spectacular results with it. And he says, you know what, JJ? This, is, I had, I, this works so well for me. I want to have you on my radio show. And he does. And she goes on the radio show. Before she's done, before her hour on the Steve Harvey show is over, she sold 10,000 copies. Wow. So she's doing great. She, she has no interest in the traditional publishing world. And all of a sudden, she starts this Facebook group that starts to grow 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people. And then the number one question in the Facebook group starts to be, JJ, I was in Barnes & Noble. I was in Walmart. I, I couldn't find your book. I couldn't find your book. And she didn't want to say, well, that's because I, I, I wrote the thing and then my brother designed the cover and we uploaded it to Amazon. And, <laughs> right. and so I'd met her at an event where I was speaking. And she said, you know, it might be time to maybe it might be time to bring out a partner in this. And so took her around New York, talked talk, talk to all the publishers, and uh, wound up doing a deal with uh, with Simon and Schuster for her. It was, and you, you know how slow the book business traditionally right. is, right? Like if the, for for people listening, the way that things usually work, you do a book deal today, that book winds up on the shelves eighteen months from now. This we set a land speed record on this. We we did a deal with uh, with SNS on Friday. We had the contract signed on Saturday. On Monday, the SNS ebook edition replaced her ebook edition on Amazon. And they were shipping the paperback 10 days later. Wow. We wanted to capitalize on the momentum. Really so they just took it over. They didn't re-edit it. They, they just took it over. Right. They didn't do anything. And in fact, to this day, if you look at it, the only difference between the original self-published edition and the Simon & Schuster edition, which is now in its, gosh, 25th printing or something, is that there's a great big banner on the Simon & Schuster edition that says the number one New York Times bestseller. <laughs> Uh, and she's gone on to sell over 2 million copies. Of That's amazing. Here's this woman who, who faced personal adversity, who did something for herself and for her, for her friends, and then found that it was so valuable that she wanted to share it with the world. And that's something that you couldn't have done 20 years ago. I mean, or even 10 years ago. Exactly. It wouldn't have been possible. Just, just wouldn't have happened. And and that's, and that's why the self-publishing world and the fact that, that, you know, and and publishers serve, uh, they have a lot of, a lot of value to add to the process, but their role as gatekeeper is really, really being, uh, is, is disappearing. And so, the old days were Mr. Simon or Mr. Schuster or Mr. Random or Mr. House right, right. And, and point and say, you're the anointed one. You're going to be a bestseller. That doesn't really exist anymore. Right. I mean, one of the things that I like to say, you know, when, you know, would-be authors ask me, you know, should I self-publish? You know, I like to say every book is self-published in the sense that you've got to think about your book as a product in the marketplace out there that's going to win and have a strategy to make it win. And then you've got to decide, do I want a publisher to part with me to, to add some value to what I'm doing and take their cut? Or do I want to do it myself? But the old model of, okay, I wrote a book, now publisher, make it happen. You know, that's kind of old school. It doesn't happen anymore. You know, completely true. In my career, I've been fortunate enough to represent four number one New York Times bestselling authors. And two of them started out self-published. So James right. Smith self-published and Brendan Burchard originally self-published his book called The Millionaire Messenger. Actually, we, he did. He did a book when he was in college that was uh, called the Student Leadership Guide that he had, uh, that, he, that he basically self published as well. But it's extraordinary. Well, the thing about publishing, and this is particularly uh, particularly relevant to you and your audience, is that as you know, the publishing world is mostly based in New York City. And throughout the history of publishing, 
publishers and editors have wanted to acquire and publish the kinds of books that are important to them. That they think they need in their lives. There's, there's, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? So in the 1950s, when, when the industry was run by Ivy League educated white guys, they published a lot of Saul Bellows and John Updikes and you know, and, and those kinds of folks. And now that the industry is largely run by college-educated uh, upper-middle-class white women who live in Manhattan or Brooklyn, you get lots of tiger moms and lots of life-changing magic tidying up. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, is that it's it's the rare publisher who understands the market outside of themselves and, right. their, and their immediate right. circle. And so if you have a publisher who happens to be based in the real world in a place like, let's say, oh, I don't know, Dallas, Texas, <laughs> It's, it's a gigantic advantage. You know, people, people might look at it. In the past, it might have been a disadvantage because you, we didn't have the tools to communicate that we do now. Right. Now it's so easy. Exactly. I'll go out there and I'll make a crazy prediction. I will say that within the next 10 years, one of the big five publishers is going is to relocate. They're going to leave Manhattan and they're going to go to a place where cost of living is lower, where property is less expensive and where taxes are lower. So I think they're going to come to a place like Dallas, like Amazon may, may very well put its second headquarters. Right. They, you know, like they might go to a place like Omaha. They might go to a place because... You can be at the center of the culture right now without being geographically present. That's right. And, you know, in publishing, you know, there's such a push now for diversity, which is so important. Huge. But it needs to be also diversity of perspective and right. background yeah. because right, publishing can't just be publishing for publishing types. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the publishing industry has, there's always been this myth in the publishing industry that, quote unquote, those people don't buy books. Right. And, and, those people have changed over the years, right? <laughs> so, right? so for a while, so those people used to be people without college degrees, right? Those people used to be uh, African-American women, right? After all, African-American women don't buy books. And what happened? You had this amazing generation of people like Zane who self-published, who were literally selling books out of the trunks of their cars and were selling tens of thousands of copies. Right. Right. Woke up and said, oh my gosh, maybe those people do buy books, right? Those people, quote unquote, used to be political conservatives. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Rush Limbaugh comes along and uh, Judith Regan publishes him at Simon Schuster and sells millions of copies. And oh, wait, may, may, maybe, quote unquote, those people do buy books. That's right. Right. And so it's really hard to know everything. It's really hard to have a perspective that's different from your own. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the self-publishing revolution is so important, because you can see what the whole world does. And, and, and there's, there's that proof that comes from sales. Right. You don't have to take a bet. You can, you, you can bet on the winner. That's and, right. You know, when publishers add when publishers add fuel to the fire, they're really, really good at that. When it comes to picking winners and losers, that's good. Yeah, right. You know, you're probably familiar with the black swan. You know, this is a black swan business in yeah. which, you know, I look at, you know, we've done 450 books. If you take out our 10 biggest books, there's no business. Right. And when I look at even the biggest publishers, it's the same thing. You know, we had a bad year because we didn't have a Fifty Shades of Grey book. Right. But no one knows what those books are going to be up front. Yeah, like... I, Never in a million years would have thought that a vegan diet book would sell. How many copies now for China study? Uh, we're pushing 3 million. 3 million copies of this extraordinary. And, you know, it's the book and the plan are, are amazing, but it's a little bit on the academic side. And yet more than 3 million people have bought this thing, have read it, have implemented it, have lost tons of weight as a result of it. You don't see those things coming, right? That's like, right. You just never you know, know. Between the book, the sequel, the cookbooks. Yeah, I mean, it really is. A, and when we first brought out the China study, you know, vegan was some kind of communist. It was right, it was right. not a mainstream thing. Right. And you'll notice vegan never <laughs> appears in that book. Right. Part of it is how important the target market is and understanding that, you know, we aim that book at, you know, the baby boomers and the people getting older and needed to be healthy. And we, we got a lot of that market, but the core market was the vegan. Yeah. And that would turned out to be a very growing And they're group. extraordinary evangelists. 
how do you tell a vegan or a CrossFitter? They'll tell you within the first. <laughs> right? Exactly right. It's completely true, though. And it's, I'm so optimistic about the state of the book business just because there are so many ways to reach people. And there are so many communities that have not been served by the traditional publishing business who now all of a sudden have the opportunity to get the information and the entertainment that they want. So, Scott, if you got a new job, you're now the head of Penguin Random House. What would you do? What do you think? What are the big opportunities the publishers are missing? They need to trust their editors. Honestly, I think that they need the first thing that they need to recognize is that they don't know everything. And, you know, for me, it was interesting because I came in. Politics is such a data driven culture and the pollsters control everything. When I first got into this business. I was having a conversation with, uh, with the CFO of the Big Five House. And I said, you know, one of the things as an agent that really helped me do my job would be if I had access to market research. And he said, <laughs> what market research? I said, wait a minute, this is a $20 billion industry in the United States, right? Like you're telling me you don't have research that tells you that women between the ages of 30 and 50 like to read thrillers with female protagonists in the months of June, July, and August. He said, here's our market research. We publish 2,000 books a year. Some of them work, some of them don't. The ones that work, we try to publish more of. The ones that don't, we try to publish fewer. Right, that's right. Every book is a market test. Right. And so, and, and it's, you know, it's fascinating to me. What I would do is I would hire a diverse group of editors, people who come from backgrounds very different from mine, and say, what's important in your community? What kind of books would you like to read? And whether those people are from, whether it's geographical diversity, whether it is racial diversity, whether it's educational diversity, whether it's political diversity, sexual orientation, whatever, I want people who, who care deeply about their own communities and can figure out the books that are important to people right. like them. And of course, that's, it's really hard to do that when you have a business that's so geographically compressed in Manhattan or Brooklyn, where you can't live there unless you're like, unless you're rich or unless you're living with 12 roommates in, uh, you know, and have a 90 minute commute to Queens. So I, I think, you know, I think that, that a lot of the industry is going to be about getting out of metropolitan areas, getting off the coasts and figuring out what people in between, you know, in, in quote unquote flyover country want to read. 18 months ago, we went completely virtual. Right. And so, you know, I'd say more than half the people are still in Dallas, but we've got people around the country. We can hire people anywhere. And it works very well. Obviously, our authors that we're working hand in glove with, they're already everywhere. Right. right. So it really doesn't disrupt anything. And it's something that the big publishers could do very easily. But you're right. It's very hard to acquire successfully outside your target market if you're if you don't really understand that target market. And it's even harder to edit. You know, you want to maybe, oh, there's a lot of people who love wrestling. Let's do a wrestling book. But yeah. if you don't love wrestling, it's very hard for you to and edit that. Right. And you don't know who the, you don't know who the best wrestler is because right. you're, you're not spending, uh, you know, 12, to 12 hours a day studying mankind versus triple X versus whatever. I like, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not a wrestling guy, although I like, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting names that I think maybe wrestlers. It's extraordinary. And the world is changing so quickly that these new models are just, haven't caught up yet. I mean, for us as an agency, right? Maybe the only institution that's slower than the publishing business. Uh, publishing, I, I joke that publishing is like the best run business of the 19th century. <laughs> right. It really has not changed all that much since Gutenberg invented the printing press. Um, maybe the only other institution that's as, that, that's as slow as, uh, as publishing is government. It's fascinating because you talk about having a virtual office. As an agency, you know, for your listeners who, who may not know the, the way the logistics of the business work is that generally what happens is that when the publishers pay authors who are agented, they will pay their agency and then the agency will take their, take their commission out and forward the money to the author. And so as a result, as any literary agency will issue a gigantic number of 1099s 
to their authors. That's just that's right. the way you do the tax report. And so we got audited in our third year of business. And we had this, you know, we were, we had this tiny little 800 square foot office in Manhattan. And the guy from the New York Department of Labor came and he said, where are all the people? And we looked at him and we said, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, you issued 250 1099s last year. Where are all these people sitting? Where are they working? And we said, we have no idea. So they're in the closets at home. They're on the beach in Bali. Right. They're authors. They're in, their, their systems hadn't, like he thought we were running the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. <laughs> right. and, 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 but this is New York. Don't they have other literary agencies? You would think, but this guy was from Albany. And right. it was, you know, and, and he's and, and he was he was in this he was in this little silo and somebody should go audit this company, figure out why figure out why these people aren't employees, figure out why they're not playing, you know, why they're not paying uh, employment taxes on these people. And the reason we're not doing that is because they're authors. They're they 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 control their own lives, they write their own books, they do other they do their own thing, we're their agents. And even though these crazy IRS rules say that the money has to come to us and we have to give them the ten nines and stuff. They 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 own their own businesses. They are their own businesses, like you said. Everybody's right. self-publishing, right? There are complications with being virtual. You know, whenever we have somebody going to a new state, we've got all these things we've got to file, and we have to deal with income tax in those in states, states exactly. proportionally to the sales right. of the states. So we right. create a tax nexus. So yeah, the, it doesn't make. You know, the technology has gone ahead of the regulation. In there, needs, of- there needs to be a new paradigm, right? There, there needs to be a new way of governing that takes into, that takes into account this virtual phenomenon, that takes into, into account the fact that not everybody comes to the plant uh, and, you know, and works from nine to five. And That's so right. but it, it's, it's and, not there. Right. And, you know, different employees want different things. Different people need different things in their lives. People have different stages. We've got, you know, we've got some people or, or, or other, uh, we and other companies would love to have people who worked. 10 hours a week, right? Because in those 10 hours, they can be remarkably productive. They can bring a diversity of thought and their own experience to the business in a way that, that I could never have being, you know, being who I am and, and doing what I do. So we've got people who are raising kids, you know, whose primary job is, is taking care of the kids, right. making sure that, 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 that everything's set up at home, but drive some bananas. They, they want some adult contact. They want to be, they want to work in the commercial world, but they can only do it for 10 or 20 hours a week. No problem. Like, and some of our, some of our best agents for Three or four years of their careers were part-time agents. Or some of our other best agents are uh, have had long and productive careers at other places where they were working eighty hours a week. But now, you know, maybe they're maybe they're at a stage in their life where they don't want to work those eighty hours a week. Maybe right. they want to work twenty hours a week and travel with their family. That's great. But the structures don't exist right now in, in so many businesses and, and, and in the regulatory environment to easily accommodate those things. Well, I'm going to shift us over. Let's talk a little bit about the way authors get paid. Because it always struck me, you know, as maybe I didn't grow up in this business. I moved in as an, you know, as an entrepreneur when I was 40. The way we do royalties and advances always strikes me as just kind of bizarre. Sure, it is. So there's, you know, the, and obviously there's this royalty system that pays between, you know, seven and a half percent and 15% on the cover price of a book, but everyone gets an advance and that advance up front you earn out against that advance. So when you earn royalties, that advance is eaten away until once that advance is eaten away to zero, then you start getting paid additional money and, after that advance. And you know that the whole concept of an advance against royalties is a relatively recent phenomenon in book publishing, right? It, it was only the beginning of the 20th century that publishers started paying advances. If you were publishing a book in 1880 or 1890 or even the early part of the 20th century, there, there was no advance. Your publisher was going to front the money to print the books and to get them to the retailers, but there's no advance. It was only, it was really only in the days of like Max Perkins and Scribner right. and Gerald and Hemingway that you started to get these small relative advances. And it was nothing like the advances that the publishers are paying now. The bizarre thing to me is, so the authors that, where the publishers get excited, maybe even overexcited, pay a big advance that never comes remotely close to earning out. Right. 
benefit at the expense of the authors that are actually very successful and earn out and get a lower percentage of all the revenue their books bring in. Yep. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you think that through? Yeah. One of the lines that I use with my, with my authors all the time is that nobody gets rich selling books to publishers, right? You only get rich selling books to people. Right. And you might convince a publisher to really go crazy for your book. But uh, unless you're already in a place where you've got a gigantic following, if you're a huge celebrity or something, let's say the cap for your advance is going to be a million bucks. And that I would never in a million years sneeze in a million bucks. Right. But compared to what the best selling books of all time earn, that's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tiny amount. What makes a sustainable career for an author is finding individuals who are going to walk into a bookstore or go online and buy that person's book, recommend it to their friends. and like like J.J. Smith, buy 2 million copies of this right. thing or something right. Like that, right? And so you might get a big advance from the publisher on the first book, but unless you're selling it to individuals, unless, you know, unless you're actually adding value to these people's lives, you're going to have a very short career as an author. And you know, what's fascinating is, I don't know how much of the, of the mechanics of the book business we want to get into. There's probably going to be a lot of book geeks reading this thing, but or listening to this podcast. All those books that, that are in those physical bookstores, right? whether it's Barnes & Noble, whether it's your independent bookstores, those are, bookstores are basically consignment shops, right? That's right. So, if those books don't sell, they're going to send them right back to the publisher and they're going to get their money back. And so another reason why the self-publishing and the digital revolution has been such a huge deal for publishing, it used to be that unless your book sold really well in the first two or three months, it was gone. It had, it had no useful economic life after that right. because, there was, because it was a real estate game. You couldn't get the shelf space. They were, going to, they were going to move you right out the door for the next book that was going to come in that was going to sell better than yours. The retailers themselves aren't taking the risk. The people who are taking the risk are the publishers because they're the ones who are paying to print all these copies in, in the physical world, at least under the old model. Now, in the digital world, you can have this long tail. You can have these books that appeal to a very small segment of people in a way that you never could because like- Because right. more than half of all sales are happening online now. Right, exactly. And, and, you, and, 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 there's, and, there's, and there's no cost to having an additional book in your online bookstore, right? Right the way that there is if you're paying $50 a square foot for that, you know, for that Union Square retail right. in New York. And that's a really big thing. It's really transformed the way publishing works because it means that publishers can take, can publish more esoteric books. They can publish books that appeal to a smaller set of, I don't want to kid things because publishing, book publishing at the traditional level is still a mass market business, right? Because the retail environment is set up the way it is, your books have to appeal to a generic customer, right? Like if you're the world's biggest expert on horse hoof repair, Chances are that a general trade book is, is right. not the way to share your knowledge. You know, you're going to do consulting, you're going to do online courses or whatever. So any book that gets published, any book that finds its way onto Amazon or finds its way into Barnes & Noble or your local independent has to appeal to a lot of people. It can't just appeal to a very small segment. But online, you know, if you're, if you're self-published, right. you can do books that appeal to hardcore people on one side of the political spectrum or the other, other side of the political spectrum so or sometimes whatever. Sometimes those niches are bigger than you think. No question. I remember looking at, there was a book on how to compost with human manure, which I'm like, who wants this book? Over 100,000 copies sold. Yep. Yep. So that's sort of a size to be of interest. Now, are you going to get that into a lot of bookstores? Probably not, not. But it, right. it sold a lot of quantity. If, if that's what you want, the way, as, as a consumer, you're not going to walk into Barnes & Noble and say, hey, hey, guy, the information desk. <laughs> yeah, where's the I have this human problem. manure section. <laughs> <Where's> the, <exactly. laughs> They're going to look at you like you have five heads. But, but the first thing you're going to do is going to type it into Google. And if that book shows up, bam, you're set. So, well, as you know, one of the things that we've been experimenting with, and I'd say it's a third of our books now, is we <laughs> do a profit share. So lower advance or no advance, but much higher upside. But basically, it's a much more linear relationship between how much money we're making and how much money the author gets. Yep. But we're not the only ones doing that, right? Is how big a trend is that in the industry? 
You know, it's it's a really good question. Uh, it's always existed, right? And some of the biggest authors, some of the some household name novelists, for instance, people you see perpetually at the top of the bestseller list. Before I was in the business, I would say to myself, "My gosh!" Or when I was early in my early days in the business, I would say, "Why why would they do this for a, for a fifteen percent royalty on a hardcover? You know, they're making three three fifty a book, and their publisher's making seven dollars. But meanwhile, this this guy is the brand name. That's right. And, and you know, like Doubleday is not the brand name. John Grisham is the brand name, or whatever." And as it turns out, traditionally, and, and people don't really talk about it a lot, but but some of the biggest names in publishing have been doing these kinds of deals. James Patterson, for instance, is reputed to have a profit-sharing deal with uh, Little Brown because he sells millions and millions of books, and he he does so much marketing on his own behalf, and people know him. I, you know, uh, if you ask people, if we were to if we were to talk to a hundred people and say, "How many of you know the name James Patterson?" I'll bet you eighty percent of them would say, "Oh, absolutely." If you were to talk to eighty people and say, "How many of you have heard of, have, have heard of Little Brown?" People say, Little Brown what? Little Brown Squirrel? Little Brown Mouse? (laughs) Maybe 10% of people. The bulk of book publishing has kind of worked on this venture capital model, right? Where publishers take bets with their own capital on a basket of investments on 100 books, let's say. Of those 100 books, they're going to lose money on 70% of them. Seven out of 10 of these books are, are, are not going to be are not going to be big hits. One of them is going to break even. One of them is going to be a, a small success. And then one of them, if they do their job well, is going to be a big success. Right. And so what happens is you have this cross-collateralization where your most successful authors on your list subsidize your least successful authors on your list. Exactly. And it used to be a good thing, but a couple of things are happening. The authors who have been on the top of the list are realizing, wait a minute, this is not such a good deal for me. And their agents are realizing this is not necessarily a great deal for this author. And so there's this big donut hole that's, that's, that's appearing in the, in the market, right? And where you used to have a lot of journalists, a lot of academics who would make you know, decent money on their books. It wouldn't be life-changing money, but they would get $75,000, $100,000, $150,000 advances and sell you know, maybe 10,000 copies of their book. Uh, so the publisher's just about breaking even right. on those kinds of books. And what you have happening right now is that you have a lot more publishers paying a lot more money, paying 500, 600, 800, 1.5 million for the, for the authors who have the followings and who are going to sell those 150, 200, 500 million copies. And you also have a lot of people where the publishers are saying, okay, we're going to pay you a $5,000 advance. We're going to pay you no advance at all because what we bring to the table, because you're so risky and we can't bear this risk right. anymore. And we're just going to throw that spaghetti against the wall and, and see, see what sticks. sticks. And that's fine. And the problem with that is that the authors are saying, okay, well, if I don't have the guaranteed money, what's the publisher adding versus me just going online and doing this myself? And in some cases, it's worthwhile if you have an amazing editor, if you have a publisher who's really going to be transformative. But if it's a publisher who's just going to slap their colophon on the, on the spine of the thing, if there might, might not even be a physical copy of it, then authors have a much harder decision to make about whether the publisher's adding enough value to capture what they're taking or whether they should just do it themselves. Now, when you think about, let's say you've got somebody maybe in the middle, they're getting $150,000, $200,000 advance level. And let's say they've got offers from five or six different publishers. Mm-hmm. How differentiated are the publishers in your mind? How much is it, oh, this person will be, this publisher will be best for this book. And it's the money, you know, is, is relevant, but it's only one factor. Or is it really about, they're all kind of fungible. It's who gives the biggest money? I won't say that traditional publishing is a commodity because it's not. There are definitely distinctions among publishers. There are definitely tiers of publishers. There are publishers who tend to have more success with certain kinds of books than other publishers. No question about that. In a lot of ways, the individual editor who's the acquiring editor uh, makes a bigger difference than the publishing house because the difference between a great editor and a mediocre editor is a lot bigger than the difference between a great publisher and a mediocre publisher. 
That's very interesting. And what does that great editor do? Because they don't control marketing. There's a lot of things they don't control. So what is it that makes them add that much value? Two things. One, a great editor will make the book appreciably better. There are certain things that publishers are really good at. They're good at finding good books. And then through the editorial process, with the right editors, they can make those books a lot better. I mean, the, the, the number one thing that's going to sell a book is going to be the book. When somebody reads it and they pass it along to somebody else and they say, oh my gosh, you have to read this, right? You don't do that with a book that was like, that was a meh book. You're like, ah, you know, it was okay. There's no pass along fact. But if the editor can, can work with the author to take what's in that author's head and make sure it gets onto the page in a way that's, real, that's entertaining and informative, that's a huge value add. And you don't really see it. So, and the other, the other huge value add from editors is the best editors know how to identify and deploy the resources within the publishing house to the best effect, right? Because when it comes to publicists, let's say, at every publishing house, there are great publicists and there are mediocre publicists. Right. There are great marketing people and mediocre marketing people. And so the best editors are like, no, I don't want John to do the, the, the publicity on this one, this one. Let's have Sally do the publicity on this one. And when Sally does the publicity, you get those big media hits because John, you know, he's got some other stuff going on. And so part of it is an editor with the clout to make things happen in that publishing house. Right. Or even the knowledge of how to, of how to work the system. Because, you know, publishing, like everything else, the resources are scarce within, within any company, right? And, and if you can get more of the resources within the company and, more, and better resources, your book's going to have a better chance to succeed. I love what you said about editing. And I don't hear it that often from agents. And, and you know, there's almost a false learning out there that it's all platform. Get your book out fast. That's what matters. As you know, we've got, four full-time editors and all they do is edit. And I have had authors out of big houses who go, I've never been this edited in my life. And they kind of like it, but you know, it's, it's work. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt that's value added. That's important. So long as it's truly a collaborative process with the author, which is the way we like to work. Right. But I have a lot of agents who go, you know, do you really have to spend this much time editing? And then they're sort of poo-pooing it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's nice to hear at least there is a multitude of views on this. Absolutely. If you look at iconic authors, people who have published or who've been massive bestsellers, and you look at the books in the first, let's say, third of their career, when they didn't necessarily have the clout of being a household name, when they were the ones who were working with great editors, those books in the first third of their career are objectively better than the books in the last third of their Before they got too powerful, but they didn't have to be edited anymore. Or so they, two, right. So two things happen, right? One is that I'm author effing author. My words are gold. That's right. Right? Which obviously doesn't happen when you're trying to sell a first book. But so that's, that's the first thing that happens. And that's one of the reasons why those later books tend to feel a lot more like they're phoned in because people who are these extraordinary professionals are editing those things early on. And the other thing that's huge is when you become an author of that stature, all of a sudden you become a meaningful entry on the publisher's P&L and the timing of your book matters a lot. And if you turn in a manuscript that's maybe not such a great manuscript, 10 years ago, when you weren't a meaningful entry in the P&L, they could take an extra six months to edit that book. Now, if the retailers are expecting those million copies to ship in September, you better darn well ship in September. Right. What do we do? Well, brand name versus million copies shipped in September versus the next fiscal year. It's a very disciplined author that's going to insist on the an editing process. Yes. And, and, you know, and, and the fact is, is that no matter how good a writer you are, no matter how good an author you are, nobody can edit themselves. Right. You can't do it. The same way you can't do psychotherapy on yourself, you can't edit yourself. You know, editing, I love that you're saying this is an added value for the publisher. But to me, the biggest thing has got to be marketing. And it's a big conundrum because, you know, publishers aren't famous for being great at marketing. Authors now bring as much or more to the table marketing-wise as, as publishers do. 
But in the end, if we're moving toward a world where increasingly sales are online, increasingly it's not about distribution, don't publishers have to get very good at marketing? It doesn't have to be something that they really add value. And I've alluded to this a bunch of times. We've gone halfway down the road. So the things that publishers are very good at, finding great books, they're good at finding good authors, good at the editorial process, making those books better books, good at all the logistics, good at printing, good at designing, good at warehousing, good at everything about getting those books to the places where people buy them, whether it's physical bookstores or whether it's online. And what they traditionally have not been very good at is convincing an individual to come into a bookstore and buy a specific book. Right. And so there, there are two ways to overcome that. One is to develop a competency in that as a publisher. And some have done that and some have done it in, in, in an okay way. Or two, if you have access to money, you can buy it. And we've really seen that happen a lot over the past 10 years where authors who already have these large fanatical followings are becoming, they're, they're becoming very highly sought after. That's where you have these huge auctions. That's where you have these big bidding wars among publishers because somebody who's got a proven track record, who's, got a, who's already got a huge following, the publishers know that they're not, that they're not the best at marketing. And so right. if, they can, if they can bring on the author as their partner to not only create the work, but to market it, that person becomes a lot more valuable. And so- the nonfiction world in particular has really gone that way. And so it doesn't matter what part of the business you're looking at. I mean, you can, you can look at, um, you can look at, let's say, my old business politics, right? The political books that were published in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s, a lot of them were idea-driven. They were, they were just good ideas. They were provocative ideas. They were interesting. They were groundbreaking. Now the political books that are being published, they're it's not. Celebrities. They're celebrity books. Exactly. Yeah. They're books by political celebrities. Does that harm discourse? I think so. Is it bad for the book business? I think so. On the other hand, there are so many other forms for ideas themselves, whether it's blogs, whether it's, you know, whether it's podcasts, whether it's whatever, that people might just prefer to get their ideas in a different format than they prefer to get their ideological reinforcement. Right. But isn't that sort of making the best of a situation that isn't necessarily ideal? I mean, Where's the next group of thinkers going to come from? I mean, it's the people that are great at building platforms aren't necessarily the people that are the biggest, best ideas. Right. So there needs to be a way for those, maybe those up and coming political science assistant professors mm -hmm. with a great idea to do a book. Doesn't bring a big marketing thing. But if, if the publisher brought great marketing to them, you know, they could pay, have a reasonable success. Maybe. And I think that what we're doing right now is like, you haven't written a book, right? No. Yeah, no, nor, nor have I. But- People who have interesting ideas have so many ways to share those ideas with people right now that a book, it, it, you know, it used to be that you would write the book and that would be what, what broke you out and what got you famous. The, the book is now kind of a trailing indicator that once somebody has already made it and somebody has an established following, that's the right time for a book in a way that maybe 50 years ago, the book was the way that you would introduce yourself to people. Oh, that's very interesting. So if you look at the, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the two best-selling books to date of best-selling nonfiction books of 2018 have been Fire and Fury, the Michael Wolf, and Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life. And both of those guys had very substantial followings outside of the traditional book business. You know, Wolf had his New York Magazine platform. He had all this traditional publicity, all this stuff. And he was obviously writing about- uh, right. And it was the right book politics. at the right time. Exactly. And on the other hand, Jordan Peterson became this unwitting YouTube star because of the political stand that he took in Canada of all places and right. was demonized for, for so many reasons. Uh, and that's what got him the mind share, what got the awareness. Maybe this guy's book might be interesting. Maybe maybe I might hate it. Maybe I might want to argue against it. But let me take a look at it. And when they did, the boy, the pass along factor of that book is huge. Right. And the Jordan Peterson book, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't 100% fit the model. It wasn't like he had an enormous platform and then did this book. His platform blew up as his book was out. It was just a 
amazing coincidence. Of- the timing was extraordinary. Right. And you know, that book has still not been on the New York Times bestseller list. We, 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 can, we can talk about the list all the time. Right. But, the, and, and the Times, quote unquote, justification for not putting it on the bestseller list is, well, the book wasn't actually published in America. It was only published in Canada. And the edition that you can buy in the United States is the Canadian edition. Yeah, the New York Times list is very political. There's no question it's, about it. You know, it. it's, it's, not, it's not a list of best-selling books. It's a list of books that the Times wants you to think you should read. <laughs> right, right. So now, well, I'm talking about Brendan Burchard, before you were, you were telling me a story about you know, some of the challenges that he's had. I'd, I'd yeah. love if you want to talk about that now. For those of you out there who don't know Brendan Burchard, he's a, uh, he's a fascinating guy. He's a self-help and personal development guy. He's probably best known for his one of his first books called The Millionaire Messenger. The subtitle is Make a Difference in a Fortune, Sharing Your Advice with People. He's had you know, tons of high-end consulting clients. He does uh, events all over the world. He sold millions and millions of books. Brilliant speaker. A really extraordinary speaker. A re- really, really smart guy. And you know, his first book, Millionaire Messenger, in fact, was, was basically self-published because, well, for a couple of reasons. He, he had this idea that he wanted to share this content with his, with his audience. And he was filming a PBS special at the time. And he wanted to have a book to go along with the PBS special. And he made the decision in January and the special was going to air in early April. And the traditional publishing world just never, it just really never works that quickly. So he wrote the book in six or seven weeks, got it out there and it started to do very, very well. And then he said, you know what? I think that if, if this book had more, had more distribution, if, if we could get it in front of more eyeballs, that it would sell better. And sure enough, we did a deal for him and, uh, and, and got it out there. And so we did, uh, we did a deal that involved Millionaire Messenger and that would also involve two other, uh, two other books, one of which was called The Charge, The 10 Human Drives That, that Keep Us Alive, and with Free Press, which, was, which used to be an imprint at Simon & Schuster. Right. And he had a spectacular editor at Free Press and had a wonderful publisher. And he turned in his first book, became a New York Times bestseller, sold you know, well into the six figures in, in numbers of copies. And then in between the time that he delivered that first book and it was published, the time that he delivered the second book in that two-book deal, Free Press got liquidated. As corporations do, they had a reduction in force. They laid off a bunch of people. They consolidated. And he got sent to another part of the house that didn't understand who he was and didn't understand why he was important to his, to, to his fans. And so when he delivered the manuscript for his second book, a book that came to be called The Motivation Manifesto, his editor and his publisher looked at this thing and said, I, I don't get it. He said, what do you mean you don't get it? We've never seen any book like this before. We can't publish a book that's not like any other book we've published. <laughs> and Brendan said, well, well, maybe those are the kinds of books you should be publishing. Right. <laughs> and this is a guy who said multiple bestsellers Right. In the past, so he knows yeah. what he's talking this about. Is a, right, this is a guy who, when he sends out an email, like he's, he's right now got the number one podcast in the world. He's got a blog that's read and loved by millions of people. He's a genuine influencer who's doing groundbreaking research and, like, and really amazing stuff. And the publisher, because this book was different from anything else that they'd ever seen, and Brennan's intention when he wrote this book was to do a legitimate manifesto about motivation. And so he went to the historical traditions of high rhetoric. He looked at the communist manifesto and he looked at these, all these other, uh, these right. other ideological statements. And so when we got the editorial notes, it was very clear. The end of the first chapter, right? The last sentence of the first chapter is, and, and you know, to this, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And the editorial notes came back and they said, this doesn't make any sense. What does this mean? And Brennan said, why don't you ask Thomas Jefferson? It's, it's, it's the last line of the Declaration of Independence. Right. Because this book is, is your own personal Declaration of Independence. And so later on, he talked about, you know, he, he alludes to uh, when, when, you're, when it comes to motivation, what you're trying to channel are the, you know, the, the, better, the better angels of men's nature. And the editorial notes came back and said, that doesn't make any sense. And Brennan said, well, take it up with Abraham Lincoln because it's taken verbatim right. from the Gettysburg Address. And so it's the like publisher, an illiterate editor. But it became clear that the partnership was the wrong partnership. 
And if they didn't understand this, this book, they weren't going to publish it the right way. He didn't want them to publish it. They didn't want to publish it. And so they said, look, and, and, and I'm not giving up any confidences here because Brendan talks about this stuff from stage. But the advance for this book was literally a million dollars. And they said, well, we, we can do one of two things. Either you can write another book that's more similar to your first one, or you can give us our million dollars back. And Brendan said, okay, I'll give you your million dollars back. And he did. And he went on to publish it with another publisher. And it hit the New York Times list, has sold over 500,000 copies, and has probably become his, one, of his, one of his best loved books. Again, it's, it's diversity in people. It's diversity in market. It's, and if you understand whose life you're going to change with your book, it makes you, it puts you in a, in a position to be a much more successful author, right? Those are the right. three things. When, when, you, when, when, I'm, when I'm taking out a project as an agent, there are three things I look for, right? I look for market. I look for author and I look for promise. Is the market big enough to support a book on this topic? Right? Who's the author and what's their relationship with that market? So Brendan Burchard has this people who are looking for motivation, who are looking for coaching on, on entrepreneurship. And then what's the promise? What's the transformational promise of the book? If the reader reads this book and implements the advice, how is their life going to change? And if you have those three things that come together, uh, the market, the author, and the promise, that's what makes a big nonfiction book for me. And if you can articulate those things, let's go more into, into publishing sausage making. Right? When, when Glenn buys a nonfiction book, he doesn't buy it seeing the whole book. He buys it on what's called the book proposal, right? Which is basically a business plan for the book. And a good book proposal is basically just a statement of market, author, and promise over and over again right. in a bunch of different ways. And some proof that they can deliver on that promise. Correct. Like to sample chapters. Correct. Exactly. Yep. You have chapter outline to make sure you're not buying a pig and a poke to make sure that, that there's actual substance there so you can see what the promise is and you can see the steps that people will take to transform. It's that transformation, right? And, and even if it's a, there has to be some kind of, there has to be some kind of promise to the reader. And, and the promise might be, you will learn more about the subject that you're already fascinated by. So if you're already fascinated by the Real Housewives of whichever county and you buy that book, you'll learn more about Countess whomever. If it's a diet book, the promise is, we will help you solve this problem. You've not been able to take off those last 10 pounds. This book will give you a plan to do it. And if you do what we, what we tell you to, you'll lose those last 10 pounds. That's my promise to you. And books that have a muddy promise just don't do well in the, in the market. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Now, how do you find the authors that have those qualities? I mean, it's rare. It really is. It's different for me because I've been doing this for so long and because people know who I am. Those authors often find me. Right. And so it gets a lot easier when you've been doing it for a while because the authors for whom you've demonstrated success know other people who are very successful and who might not have done a book or who might not have had good experiences with a book in the past. And so they say, no, wow, your experience is very different from mine. You got you to talk to, to my team and I'm part of their team. If I were a young agent just starting out, I was looking for these people. I would say, go to the places where people are doing extraordinary and fascinating things. And those are not places where authors come to congregate. Those are people where people who are, who are really making a difference come to congregate. If I were going to go to a conference, it wouldn't, be to go to, it wouldn't be a writer's conference. It would be a physics conference. It would be an acting conference. It would be a politics conference. It would be something else. Because the people who are making waves there are going to be the vanguard of whatever those new ideas are. And people are coming to see them. They're coming to, already coming to see them. So they've got that, that installed fan base already. That's right. And so ultimately it comes, down to, it comes down to reaching people. It comes down to changing people's lives, right? And so figure out who the people are who are changing people's lives. Figure out whether, whether that information can be packaged and useful in book format. And then combine those people who are creating that information with publishers who can take it to the next level. And that's, that's kind of the, the recipe for, for making a successful book. Now, when you think of your business and just put your entrepreneur hat on, mm -hmm. In competition with all the other agencies out there, what do you see as the competitive dynamics? Man, there's, there's so many ways to answer that question, right? It's fascinating. We talked about book proposals, right? And in a lot of ways, 
one of the sections in, in a book proposals where you talk about other books that are in the same market space as yours. And traditionally, that section of the book has been called competing works, right? What other right. books are going to compete with this book? And I completely reject that notion, right? I don't think that books ever compete with one another. Would I rather sell a diet book to somebody who has never bought a diet book? Or would I rather sell a diet book to somebody who bought a diet book six months ago? If you bought the South Beach diet, you're going to be much more likely to buy the 10-day green smoothie cleanse than if you're somebody who's never bought a diet book. I completely reject the notion that books compete against one another. If you bought you know, if you bought Ray Dalio's Principles, you're probably the same person who bought Hurwitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. You're the same person who, who bought Jack Welch's book or whatever. Right. And so books have a network effect, right? Like you want to be on the same shelf as other books that are like yours because people are like, oh, I want that one and that one and that one and that That's one. Right. As opposed to trying to convince somebody to buy a book who's never bought a book. <laughs> right. Right. So when it comes to being an agent, I really don't think that agents compete against one another, you know, except for things like maybe celebrity projects. When somebody has a large fanatical following, you can help them with the book. You can make the uh, introduction to publishers, but there's not a whole lot of work you have to do as an agent for some of these things. In some ways, you can't be too smart as an agent. If you come up with a book that's going to be the, the best-selling book of 2025, right? We're in 2018 right now. Right. Because it's an idea that's so revolutionary, nobody's going to understand it in 2018. You're not going to be able to sell that book. So... What it really comes down to is figuring out which authors have important things to say and have that market and, and can make that promise to readers. And if you can figure out those people and you can tell them how to articulate it, as an agent, that's, that, that's sort of what you're looking for. That's the holy grail. And when you hire a new agent, what are you looking for in terms of their characteristics, their personality? I can teach people how to sell books. I can teach people how to talk to publishers. I can teach people how to source authors. I'm looking for intangibles, right? I'm looking for work ethic. I'm looking for assertiveness. I'm looking for tenacity. I'm looking for life skills more than anything else. I don't care where you went to college. I don't care if you went to college. I want to know, A, do you know what's out there already? Have you read a lot of books? So you can tell the difference between what gets published and what doesn't get right. published. I couldn't teach this business to somebody who'd never read a book before. I, I, I don't think I could. But if I were to hire a young agent, particularly in the nonfiction side, fiction's a little bit different. But for, for nonfiction, it all comes down to, again, you don't get rich by selling books to publishers. You get rich to selling books to people. You have to unpack that and you say, well, why do people buy books? And then if you understand why people buy books, and there are really only a limited number of reasons why people buy books, there are seven reasons. I, I don't, won't go into it in the podcast. If you identify what that reason is and the, and the book makes that promise, then you have a book that, that, that could be successful. And if you're publishing a book that doesn't fit into one of those seven reasons, it's not going to be successful. And I learned that lesson the hard way. I learned that lesson over 10 years of failure, right? So there are a bunch of projects that I took out that didn't sell or that if a publisher did decide to take a flyer on them, just didn't, didn't sell copies to people. Right. I met this woman at a conference, absolutely brilliant, but one of the foremost experts in the world. And, and her book was about the 10 things in your house that are most likely to kill you. <laughs> okay. And she wanted to do a book about this. And I said, you know what? You are absolutely brilliant. Is this, is this knowledge valuable? Like if, if you had this knowledge, would your life be better in a million years, right? Because you, most people don't want to die. The problem is, is that they're not going to pay $25 for a hardcover book that's going to teach them that, right? People will buy a book to solve a problem they know they have, but they won't buy a book for somebody to tell them what their problems are. So like if you're, if you're pitching a book where you could append the tagline, film at 11, the 10 things in your house that are likely to kill you, film at 11, it's an amazing blog post. It's an extraordinary podcast episode. It feels it's, like an article. Correct. Right. It's a magazine article. That's where, you, that's where you get people to know that they have that problem. And then, so like the, the, the book for her would have been, so you've got a child. How do you make sure that your child doesn't die in your house? Because people now know, new parents know that there are things in their, that, that, they, might, that they might not be even, even thinking about. How do you, how do, how right. do child-proof your house? They know they have that problem. They just don't know how to solve it. The book will teach them how to solve the problem 
But if you're trying to do a book that tells people they have a problem, it's not a book. It's a podcast. It's an article. It's a it's a, a, a free opt-in. Unless you turn yeah. it into a comedy book, the ten things that in your house will kill you. That could be a funny book. <laughs> that's true. Well, it's right. And if, and if, and if the if the object is to make people laugh, that's one of the seven reasons that people will buy books. Then then you can make it work. But the promise the, the promise in, in that book is not we're going to save your life. It's we're going to make you laugh. That's right. That's right. Where do you see the industry evolving? I talk to a lot of agents who are you know a little gloomy about the way things have evolved, but Sounds like you're very think things are moving in a great direction, very upbeat. Where do you see that heading from here? You know, I think the publishing industry has been remarkably stable. Uh, the, I mean, it's as an as an industry that's been around for gosh, I sort of six hundred years. There have not been that many changes since the you know since the days that right, Gutenberg right. invented the printing press. In the scheme um, of things, so what's changing about it? And ultimately, I'm a capitalist. And the way that you succeed in any business is by adding value. It's by creating value. And so to the extent that agents and a lot of agents, you know, a lot of agents were like, they were like Catholic priests in the Middle Ages, right? They, 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 were, the, they were the gatekeepers. They said, no, 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 sorry. You, 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 you can't talk to God directly. I, I have to do that for you. People who were gatekeepers, they're, they're gone. They've, they've been disintermediated out. They're going to go the way of travel agents, right? That job doesn't add any value anymore. And in fact, frustrates people. So- Publishers that saw themselves as being the arbiter of what was good and what wasn't good, what people should read, what people shouldn't read, they're gone. So the publishers that are going to succeed in the future are going to be the ones who, who legitimately make it easier for people to get the ideas that they want or who make those ideas better. Those are the two things that are really important. Agents, too, same way. You know, as an agent, you were one of the top 20 agents in, in Manhattan in the 1950s, you had it made because everybody came to you and you know you took your cut and you you had your courier ship the manuscript over to the to the publisher. They edited it. You got to the office at 10, you went to lunch at one, you had your three martinis, you, and then, <laughs> and, and, right. you, you went home by four. Business doesn't work that way anymore because a lot of a lot of authors don't need agents. Because I look, if, if you were to come to me right now as somebody who had a, a first uh, science fiction novel and say, Well, I, you know, I'd love to hire you as my agent, I'd say, I I would say I can't justify my existence to you because what I'm going to bring to the table isn't worth it. If you self-publish this thing, like what's what's the best thing that happens? I get you a deal with a with a with a science fiction house. We're going to get a five thousand dollar advance. I get fifteen percent. I'm going to make seven hundred fifty dollars. Okay, you're much better off on your own, keeping keeping one hundred percent of the money rather than than taking your royalty. As an agent, I serve kind of a, a weird niche in the ecosystem. I, I I look at myself as a PGA Tour swing coach, like Tiger Woods coach, right? I take these people who are already at the top of their game and I make them ten percent better. And when somebody like Brendan Burchard, when he gets 10% better, that means that he sells 500,000 more books. That's right. And so that I can justify and 10% my percent in the, you know, in this book business where, you know, we're dealing with the black swan where the books that do well, do very Unbelievably well. Unbelievably well. Being 10% better means doubling your sales. Exactly right. That's yeah, exactly no. right. And, and so like, if I can teach Tiger Woods how to take three strokes off his game, that means that he wins the Masters and the US Open, Right. If I have some weekend duffer and I can teach that person how to make their game 10% better, now they're shooting 90 instead of 100. But is that valuable to them? Yeah, absolutely. But how valuable is it to them? It's not $100,000 valuable. It's not million dollars right. valuable. Is it $500 valuable to that person? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I teach an online course in publishing and nonfiction publishing so that I can so I share my knowledge with people that way. But like, but the people that I work with one-on-one, they're generally at the top of their game. And what I do is make them a little bit better. Now, in your profile, you say, and I don't know if you do this anymore, that you take on first-time novelists. Is that something you've stopped doing? It's been a long time. Um, the, the business has changed so much. I, and look, when I got into this business, I thought the, the kinds of books that I were going to represent were going to be big international thrillers, you know, the Robert Ludlums, the right. John Le Carres. And the fact is, is that that 
that market is so tough to break into. Every house has their one or two novelists. And until they die, basically, it's, it's really hard to elbow out space in, in that niche. There's some unbelievable self-published stuff in that space right now. And like, and, and a lot of the um, some of the some of the space and fiction that used to be the denizen of big publishing houses. So, for instance, like uh, let's say techno thrillers, the Tom Clancy space. Right. Nobody publishes techno thrillers anymore. I mean, like maybe St. Martin's does some, maybe Tor does some. Berkeley might might have done a little bit, but boy, there's some people doing some amazing stuff in that Tom Clancy space right now, and they're all self published. That's interesting. So that market has sort of moved uh, very much so. So let's say you encounter a would be author doesn't have much of a platform yet, brilliant guy or brilliant gal, has a lot of potential. And they say, well, I know you're not going to represent me because I don't have a platform, mm -hmm. but you can see I'm brilliant. I've got great ideas. So three years from now, I want you to be my agent. What do I need to know between now and then to get to the point where you'd be interested in me? Yeah, I want you to have an audience and I want you to have demonstrated success with that audience. So I want you to build your numbers. I want, I want you to be the go-to person for that segment. I want to know who that segment is and I want to know what your relationship with that segment is, right? So, okay, great. Start your podcast. And oh, and I, by the way, I have 50,000 podcast downloads a month. Okay, not bad. Not bad. Or I have I have an email list where I have 100,000 people on my email list who love the stuff that I send because I have a 60% open rate or a 70% open rate. Or I teach an online course and I've sold uh, this online course for $500 to 10,000 people. So do you want to see them monetizing that audience or... Is that not necessary? You know, it's got to be a plus. It's, it's, it's really difficult to live if you don't make money. Right. If this is your primary professional activity, it's really hard to not make money on it. Unless you're like, unless you're a Buddhist monk or something, chances are that what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, you have a mortgage to pay, you have kids to support, you, you, know, you, have, you, have, you have to make a living. And if you have an audience, if you're, if, you're, if you're really providing that much stuff that's of value to people, what will eventually, it, it's, virtually impossible to not make money on it because people will say, well, can I, can I pay you for this? And you'll say, I, I didn't ask you to pay me for it. They'll say, no, 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 this is so valuable to me. Right. And maybe I don't want this exact thing, but if you give me this other thing, it would be extraordinary. And it'd be well, you worth look at somebody like Sam Harris, you know, who is, has monetized his podcast just through donations yeah. and he's built Patreon, quite a platform on right. that. Patreon is amazing. It's a, it's a spectacular tool. Crowdsourcing is unbelievable. What people have been, have been able to do on Indiegogo and on Kickstarter. The world is really, really exciting right now. If you do, if you do things that people like, even if it's showing stupid videos on YouTube, or, or you know, or taking butt selfies, and, <laughs> and, and, and look, that's a, I don't know how you monetize that, but butt selfies are big business right now. Like, oh, like if you're if you're Jen Stelter or whatever her name is, the queen of butt selfies, you have people who want who, who want your. 10 million Instagram followers because oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because, because boy, they would love to get their yoga pants in front of 10 million of your followers because those people are likely to wear yoga pants or they would love to get their protein shake or their, you know, their thigh master or whatever. And so if, if people like, if you, if you have the attention of people and you're providing them with something that they value, that is inherently valuable in this economy. Now, what is the kind of uh, author that you would take a risk on who doesn't have an established platform? Is there any person like that? There's two kinds of authors. One is an author who I believe has an idea that is going to be legitimately world-changing. And even if that person doesn't have their own following, I will basically do a pro bono gig, let's say, right. and take this book on because I think that the book is just is so valuable and that if people were to read this book, their lives would be fundamentally different. They, they, there would be a transformation. The world would be a different and a better place. And this is, and this is not exactly that 
not exactly that case because this is an author who's got a who's got a great following. He's a very successful journalist, but I represent a guy named Tim Carney who writes for the Washington Examiner, and he just delivered the manuscript for his book that I represented. That's about uh, democracy in America, and it's about about how the breakdown of institutions in the United States over the past fifty years, from the church to the Kiwanis clubs to uh, the PTAs to all those things, right. explain why we're fractured as a society and explain some things up fastly, the Trump phenomenon, right? If you look at the difference between areas that voted for Trump and areas that didn't vote for Trump, even in the Republican primaries, let's right. say, right? Where things were working and where there were good institutions, and Tim, Tim covers this amazingly well in his book. If you have institutions of civil society, you are going to vote for Kasich or Romney or, uh, or Cruz or somebody. If you were in a place where there are no jobs and where there was no community or, or no institution to rely on. That's what made you a Trump voter. I'd love to read that book. That sounds fascinating. It's amazing. Are you a fan of Jonathan Haidt? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, he talks a lot about this. Yes. You know, I, the- it's, 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 that, it's that great, it's that great Tocquevillian tradition of doing a deep dive into American civil society, figuring right. out, right, whether it's bowling alone, whether it's, uh, you know, Charles Murray's coming, coming apart, uh, these heights of democracy, right? All these books have really interesting things to say. And Carney in particular, he's like, he's that old school journalist who gets down there. When he was covering the election campaign, uh, he, w- he checked into a hotel and uh, he said, oh, you know, where do, where do people go to, to talk about things? And, and, and the, the checkout clerk, the clerk at the front desk said, uh, he said, oh, you can go to this place, this restaurant, or you can go to Hooters. Whatever you do, don't go to DK's. So what did he do? He went to DK's. <laughs> right. Because that's where the interesting people were. And that's where the people who were, were who's going to tell them the truth. And, you know, so much, of, so much of journalism right now is people sitting on their thrones in New York and D.C., and opining on what they think the world should be rather than getting out there and reporting on what the world really is. And that's what Tim does. And that's what, that's what makes him such an amazing author. To what extent do you feel that your background coming out of the political world, your point of view, which is maybe not the traditional New York mm-hmm. agent point of view, helps you in this business? You know, I'll tell you, that probably the biggest advantage I have over, over other agents is that I don't live in New York City. I live in Texas. Right. I mean, I have an apartment in New York. I spend, you know, I spend maybe a week a month there because that's where, that's where a lot of the business is. But the fact that I hang out with people who have a diverse viewpoint means that I can see things before the media, before the media establishment knows that they're a thing, right? Like, so for instance, Roseanne Barr, the new Roseanne show, right? I'm like, oh, what's up? There's going to be a new Roseanne Roseanne show. Who cares? Well, 25 million people watch the, you know, watch the first episode. Why is that? Because the world is a lot different than people who live in New York think it is. It's a lot different than people who live in Los Angeles or San Francisco think it is. Their world is exactly what they think their world is. But that world is only 35 or 40% of America. That other 60%, 65% has a lot to say. And boy, they buy a lot of books. So, and if you, you, know, you accept the proposition, which is hard to deny these days, that the world, that the American population is bifurcating, then... New York has an decreasing ability to understand what the rest of the country. And I watched those Roseanne shows, which I really enjoyed. You know, there's a lot of people, I read articles how they're offended that there's somebody on there that voted for Trump. So even the idea that somebody voted for Trump, even though that's a third of the country is, or more than a third of the country is, is offensive. How can you then sell books to those people if you can't even accept that they exist? There's this confirmation bias, right? This like, and People tend to accept the facts that paint the world as they believe it is, and they reject the facts that paint a different world. And so there's this amazing book, not my author, but a, but a really good book by a guy named Al Penn and Polly called Persuadable that HarperCollins published. That's all about how one of the biggest advantages going forward in, 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 in business is the ability to change your mind. Right. 
is to say, when presented with evidence, to say, you know what? I'm going to draw a logical conclusion from this evidence that's different from what I, from that the world is different than the way I thought it was. And I'm going to change my behavior accordingly. I'm not just going to look for things that, that, that reinforce what I want. Yes. Let's be fair. There's a lot of money to be made by conforming to people's worldview, right? Like if you think Trump is a buffoon, do a book that says Trump is a buffoon, you'll sell 100,000 copies. Easy. No problem. Uh, same way, if you think if you think that, that Obama was a buffoon, do a book that says Obama was a buffoon, and there'll be a hundred thousand people who will want to buy it because they because they like that. But the real value add, the real the, the real interesting things that happen are from people who are willing to to look at the world and say, you know what? Wow, I was wrong about that, and and I need right. to change, and I need to change because it's so rare. It's so rare. I despair of that. You know, the kind of books I like, you know, it would be a nuanced look at, let's say, a nuanced look at Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, there's. I don't know how big a market there is for that book. I know. Because everyone's split in terms of which where they are. And the self-published market is fantastic because you can get 10,000 people to buy it. You can make some money on it and you can you can add to the debate, add to the debate. On the other hand, in, in the bookstore, they need another 100 copies of Fire and Fury. No, that's right. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. Happy I really enjoyed this. Oh, likewise. All right. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Building Books podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Fork Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you.